Well, good morning, Orangewood. If you have a Bible, we will be in John 14, John 14, or you can follow along on the screen uh, as I read these words are inspired, sufficient, and true, and they are given us to us this morning in love. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority but the father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the father and the father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, Before you're seated, would you pray with me? And so God, this morning, remind us that you are with us. Father, son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, as we open your word today, would you meet us? Would you transform us into the image of Jesus to live our lives out in our city? We pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. You may be seated. Well, of course, one thing I did want to just mention that I forgot to during our membership is our next membership class we're planning will be in September. So if you've been praying, considering joining and becoming a member here at Orangewood, September will be our next class. So we'll have dates as we get closer. Um, If you are a guest with us, I'm really glad you are here. We have been in a sermon series called I Am Thomas, uh, looking at these questions, these doubts that we have uh, about the Christian faith, uh, things that you and I, we, we struggle to believe, and today is no exception. Uh, in fact, I would argue in our culture today, the topic may be the most difficult issue that we find with people, maybe yourself, about the Christian faith, and it can be summed up in one word, exclusivity, exclusivity. Why is Jesus the only way to God? This is a hard question in our culture. It might be a hard question for you this morning as you are thinking about this. Uh, You may have been with us through this sermon series and you're saying, hey, I I can be on board with uh, the idea that um, there is a God, as Pastor Mark talked about a few weeks ago. I can can be on board there is a God. Tyler, I can be on board that that Jesus is God. I'm I'm, I'm good with that. But this question, this idea, the exclusivity of Jesus may be very difficult for you this morning. So let's look at that. First question we need to ask is, why don't we like this exclusive Jesus? Why don't we like this exclusive? 
This will be hard for us to get around this morning uh, because it's pretty clear reality in our passage from John 14, six, that was read earlier. We, we read this. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. Uh, notice Jesus doesn't say, I know the way. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, I know where to find truth. Uh, Jesus doesn't even say, I am a way. He says, I am the way. This is a real difference with Jesus and every other worldview and faith in our world. Uh, Jesus didn't come saying, hey, here is a doctrine. Jesus came saying, here is my divinity. Uh, Jesus uh, came not declaring, I know where to find salvation. Jesus came declaring, I am salvation. I'm the only way to salvation. And this actually seems to be how his earliest followers interpreted this message that Jesus had. We read this in Acts 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, they'd healed somebody. By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to you, all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Uh, the earliest followers believed and preached that salvation was found in no other person. And now you may be thinking, oh, well, Tyler, of course they felt that way. That, that's ancient people were probably given into that kind of thinking. It was probably very common. It actually was not common at all in the ancient world. Uh, in the first century, it would have been even much harder than today to believe in an exclusive Jesus. In the first century, there were gods on every street corner. There were temples everywhere. So whatever God worked for you, uh, but this Jesus movement turned the first century world upside down. Christianity was declaring that all these other gods were not real. Only Jesus, who was raised from the dead, could save you. It was an incredibly provocative claim in the first century. In fact, the earliest days of the Christian movement, they were actually called atheists. The, the earliest Christians were, were called atheists because they rejected all the known ways of worship in the first century of the gods. They didn't have sacrifices to appease the gods. They didn't have priests to mediate the presence of the gods. They didn't have temples where you would go to offer your worship. They were simply a group of people who saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead bodily. And they knew that that was God's declaration that Jesus was God in the flesh and he was the only way. In fact, all throughout the book of Acts, you, you, you see people referring to uh, these early followers of Jesus. They're, they're called on, on only a few occasions Christians in the book of Acts, a very few that they're called Christians. The main way that they're referred to throughout the book of Acts is the people of the way, not a way, the people of the way. But why do we have such an issue with this level of exclusivity today? Well, I think there are two main issues going on and I will try my best to address each one this morning. The first one is we have an issue culturally. 
Um, there's a philosopher named Charles Taylor. He's written a lot about how culture has changed over the last 500 years. And he says, we used to live in a culture that was more an age of authority. Basically, you would have authority structures and institutions in your life that you could look to, to teach you, to guide you in how you should act. And this was seen as the flourishing life, having, having authorities and, and institutions to guide you. This is um, how, called the age of authority. But Taylor says, now in North America, Canada and the U.S., We've, we've no longer believed in listening to these authority structures. What, what we need to listen to is myself, what he calls the age of authenticity, my inner voice. I have to be true to who I am. I can only flourish. I can only flourish when I express who I truly am inside. So Taylor says the world has moved and that's the world we find ourselves in. We've moved from the age of authority to the age of authenticity. I have to be true to who I am. That's why you are here. People say today, well, I want to share my truth. Or as I heard in an interview recently, somebody sat down with in an interview and in the interview, this, the, the person that was interviewing said, we're so thankful that you're here with your courage to share your truth. This is a very common way that we hear it. No one has probably said it better than Marvin Gaye. Um, not the song you're thinking of, just in case we're wondering. But he said this, let your conscience be your guide. It won't lie to you. Truth today is defined as my truth, your truth, their truth. But Jesus says, I am the truth. And this makes Jesus's exclusivity extremely difficult, especially in Orlando. Uh, people today will say, um, I don't care what you believe. I don't, Tyler, I don't care what you believe, just as long as you don't impose it on me. I, I don't know if you've heard people say that to you. Um, or you'll hear people say, I don't care what you believe, um, just as long as you believe it sincerely, that it's true to who you are. And that is what's getting at this idea of authenticity. Be true to who, who you are. So people naturally struggle with exclusive truth claims because as long as I'm sincere, as long as I believe that I'm expressing who I truly am, then there shouldn't be an issue. Uh, but let me, let me speak to that uh, logically. Uh, there was a man named Leslie Newbegin. Newbegin was uh, sent to the people of India to share the good news of Jesus. And while he was there, he was interacting with all these different kinds of people. And, and they kept raising to him the same objection um, about Jesus and the Christian faith. And they would say, oh, th this, this reminds us of the story of the blind man and the elephant. Maybe you've heard of the, the blind man and the elephant. And what, how the story goes is how they use this uh, is they say, everyone's trying um, everyone's trying to find God, uh, everyone's searching, um, at, but, but, but they're blind. And so they're grabbing different parts of the elephant, believing they found God, but they've only found part of God. And so they'll say, um, so one blind man grabbed uh, the, 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 the trunk of the elephant and he thought God was like a snake. Or, um, one of these blind men grabbed the tusk of the elephant and he thought God was like a spear. Or one person uh, put his, his hands up against the side of the elephant, this blind man, and, and he thought God uh, was like a wall. Maybe, maybe you've heard this. 
And the people kept telling him that this is, this is what it's like searching for God. You can't have exclusive truth claims. As sincere as these people are, no one is, has exclusive truth. No one can see the whole elephant. It, this is how the argument begins to break apart for Newbegin. And this is what he said, if you can hang with it. He said this, the story of the elephant is told from the point of view of the king and his officials who are not blind, but can see the blind men are unable to grasp the full reality of the elephant and are only able to get hold of part of the truth. The story is constantly told in order to neutralize the affirmation of the great religions to suggest they learn humility and recognize none of them can have more than one aspect of the truth. But of course, the real point of the story is actually the opposite, exactly the opposite. If the king were also blind, there would be no story. The story is told by the king, and it's an immensely arrogant claim of one who sees the full truth, which all the other world's religions are only groping after. It embodies the claim to know the full reality, which relativizes all the claims of the religions and philosophies. So here's what Newbegin is saying. He's saying this. There are people that you will encounter in Orlando, and people you will hear say, I don't like exclusive truth claims. I don't like exclusive truth claims, Tyler. And that itself is an exclusive truth claim. Um, and, and, and even more than that, the very statement that it is an exclusive truth claim, that you can't have them, and that it passes for humility and tolerance, when in fact, it's the most arrogant and intolerant of statements. You're basically saying, I'm the only one who can see the whole elephant. Tim Keller, in his excellent book, Reason for God, breaks this issue down with the blind man and the elephant this way. He says this. How could you know that each blind man only sees part of the elephant unless you claim to be able to see the whole elephant? How could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior, comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality you just claim that none of the other religions have? So friends, what I ask of you this morning even if you can't accept exclusive truth claims by Jesus, will you at least see this morning that you have exclusive truth claims? Every person has exclusive truth claims. I haven't met a person in my life yet who doesn't. And the problem is, is it can masquerade as humility and tolerance when it's none of it. You're claiming to see the whole elephant when nobody else can. I'll put it another way practically for you. Let's say I am driving along I-4, driving along I-4. I'm heading to the beach. Um, I've got Marvin Gaye playing. Let your conscience be your guide. It won't lie to you. A police officer pulls me over, says, Pastor Tyler, do you you know how fast you were going back there? Uh, You were going 15 miles over the speed limit. And then I, you know, I say, Mr. Officer, I understand that's your truth, Uh, but that's not my truth. And I just really need to be who I am. Do you want to guess how the conversation is going to go next? Yeah, that officer's going to say, Pastor, we're going to need you to, to get out of your vehicle really quickly. The reality is, friends, our lives are filled with authority and exclusive truth claims. Your life, your life is filled with exclusive truth claims, whether we want to acknowledge that this morning or not. But what I'll hear some people say, they don't have a cultural issue 
with Jesus's exclusivity. What they have is more of a personal issue. Um, what they'll say is, I just, Tyler, I just can't worship a God like that. Um, I, I struggle. I struggle to believe in a God that says this is the only way. And maybe that's you this morning. Uh, and I understand what you're trying to say in those statements. Um, but what I would say is just because we don't like something doesn't make it any less true. Um, we, we ran into an issue a few years ago. We had family come into town to see us um, and they brought their small children with them. And we, um, we wanted them to be hot and miserable. And so we took them to Disney in July <laughs> and, uh, we, we all loaded up. We went down there. We're, 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 we're making our way through the park and we had some, some young kids with us. And what, what you notice is Disney, they have all these little, um, signs that tell you how tall you have to be to get on the ride. You, maybe you've seen these and, and we had, um, we, we had the kids. I mean, it was just like, right there. I mean, they were right there. Come, come on, man. They're just right there. Can't let them on. And, uh, you know, of course we, um, we argued with that Disney staffer. Uh, why? Because we were hot and miserable and it was Disney in July. Um, but it didn't change the reality. Why? Because they were in charge and they owned the park. Friends, I say this to say, if you're here and you're saying in your head, well, Tyler, I just can't believe or worship a God like that. That statement doesn't make God any less true. And it doesn't make him any less in charge of determining reality. If he owns everything. J. Vernon McGee was a famous Bible commentator through the years. He, he actually, uh, he's been dead for like 30 years, but he's still on the radio. Um, you can find his radio program still on the radio. You, you gotta be wondering like, how does he stay relevant through all these years that he's still on the radio? He's been dead for 30 years. And I think what it is, is that he reminds us no matter how much culture changes, God is still in charge of determining reality because everything is his. And I love the way he put this so succinctly. This is God's universe and God does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. I love that line. So good. Friends, I don't know. If you knew this, but you don't have a universe, but God does, God does. And he has declared reality in a statement. I'm the way I'm the truth and I'm the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. Now you may be saying this morning, um, if you still have questions and issues, okay, Tyler, I I'll give you some points. Um, uh, I realize I have exclusive truth claims. I'll give you that. Um, I get your points in theory. Maybe you're here and you're saying, Tyler, I still, uh, I don't think you've proved anything. That's fine. Uh, but I want to go further personally. And I want you to see this. Why do we need this exclusive Jesus? 
Why do we need them? That's our second question. Now, I know that statement may bother some of you, and I'd just like you to hear me out. Jesus seems to believe, Jesus seems to believe that he alone can offer you something that you are looking for. Uh, Look at our passage again. Jesus is speaking. He says this. Uh, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples that he is going ahead to prepare a place for them. It tells us in the father's house. Now, uh, most commentators interpret this, that uh, Jesus is going to prepare a place for us in the father's continual presence, which is heaven, because heaven is where God is. And Jesus says, I am going ahead of you to accomplish for you. I'm going ahead of you to accomplish for you. Why do we need this exclusive Jesus this morning? Because in that statement, Jesus names what you and I are law longing and searching for. We are all looking for life, life. Not the, I woke up this Sunday morning, I had some coffee, maybe a Sunday donut, hopefully a nap this afternoon, wake up tomorrow to do it all over again kind of life. No, Jesus says, I came to offer you life, what he calls elsewhere eternal life, an eternal kind of life. But we have sadly fallen into two traps And Jesus would like to help us. The first trap we have fallen into is what one person has called recently the satisfaction trap. Um, Arthur Brooks, who I love his writing in The Atlantic, he does such a great job, um, wrote an article recently on the satisfaction trap. And he says, we, 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 we keep living for something in the future, something we will attain, a goal achieved And once we get there, we will be satisfied. We will experience an eternal kind of life. And Brooks actually talks about his own struggle with this trap. He said this from his own life. I'd fallen into the trap. I was believing that success and its accompaniments would fulfill me. On my 40th birthday, I made a bucket list of things I hoped to do or achieve. They were mainly accomplishments only a nerd could want writing books and columns about serious subjects, teaching at a top school, traveling to give lectures and speeches, and maybe even leading a university or a think tank. Whether these were good or noble goals or not, they were my goals. And I imagined that if I hit them, I would be satisfied. I found this list nine years ago when I was 48, and I realized that I achieved every item on it. I'd been a tenured professor, then the president of a think tank. I was giving frequent speeches. I had written some books that I had sold well, and I was writing columns for the New York Times. But none of that had brought me the lasting joy I'd envisioned. Each accomplishment thrilled me for a day or a week, maybe a month, never more. And then I reached for the next rung on the ladder. Now, as I read that in one breath, I hated Brooks, and I felt sorry for him all at the same time. At 40, he made a list. I mean, type A, you can just tell it. He had a list. Who else has their lists in life? He wrote it all down on a list. He writes them all down. And less than eight years later, he achieved them all. What a jerk. (laughs) 
I mean, you have to be thinking as he writes this you're under his breath. I'm just so happy for you. So happy for you. But then Brooks tells us the truth behind the search. He says this, it didn't satisfy. I thought I would find life. Instead, I just reached for the next rung on the ladder. In his article, Brooks shares that whatever you think of the Rolling Stones and Mick Jagger, their ability to stand the test of time is because they can speak to the ache that we all feel. That Jagger sings the iconic line, I can't get no what. I can't get no satisfaction. There you go. You just got Jagger and Marvin Gaye in a sermon. (laughs) Jagger says, I can't get no satisfaction. It's a trap. It's a trap. Uh, Brooks points out this, this iconic line should actually be, I can't keep no satisfaction. When I think I have it, Brooks says, the thrill will last a day, maybe a week, maybe a month, but not any longer. And friends, we are all looking for life. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It's interesting, commentators actually talk about this passage when Jesus says this, and, and the, the, this phrase here is not actually a description of terms. It's not Jesus saying, hey, I am one, the way, two, I am the truth, and three, I am the life. It's, it's actually in an elliptical form, so it's really meant to be read, I am the way because I'm the truth, and because I am the life. I am the way to the Father's house because I alone have the power to give you eternal life. Friends, where have you fallen for the satisfaction trap? Brooks put it this way. No matter how fast we run, we never arrive. I can't get no satisfaction. There's a satisfaction trap we look to in the future, but we also see, friends, there is a shame trap looking into the past. Uh, There was a great article recently in the New York Times sharing about what's been happening at the New York Public Library System. It says this, at the end of last year, the public libraries in New York City started seeing a flood of old unreturned books start showing up in droves. Some books had been checked out from the library for almost 50 years. DVDs were returned from decades old movies. Why then sudden change to finally come clean? Well, New York's public library systems announced last October that they would be eliminating all late fines, end quote. The goal was to get back books and people who have disappeared for years. They hope to see a wave of, of returned items that had been out. And what they saw actually was an increase also of a 15% return of people back into the branches. And why do I love this article? Because I know there are some of you here today, you are avoiding your local public library. You have overdue books and you don't want to have to deal with it. You you, you don't want to go in the library because you know they're going to ask you to pay up. But this article also exposes the shame trap we all feel inside. Something happened, something we are carrying. Something that we know we should stop. Something we know that has been gone for many years, but I just cannot seem to forgive myself. We know there is a debt and we can't repay it. And there's just a shame that we carry through life in this process of whatever happened. 
But there was good news offered to the people of New York City from their local library. All debts are covered. All has been paid. All is forgiven. And when people knew their shame was removed, they began turning in books that were 50 years overdue. They returned with their head high, overdue book and DVD in hand because they knew they were safe and that everything was going to be okay. Friends, that is the life we are all looking for, that we can come out of hiding knowing that we are safe and that everything will be okay. And that is Jesus's good news to you this morning. It is exclusive, but he is the only one who can solve the the shame trap we all feel. You see, every other message, every other message of news tells us as long as you perform, as long as you keep up, as long as you are good enough, as long as you don't lose the library book, as long as you hold it together, as long as you are perfect. But you have to be asking, but what if someone truly knew my life? What if someone truly knew what I thought? What someone truly knew what I did? Way worse, Tyler, than a 50-year-old library book. What if someone truly knew? Well, Jesus knows. But he doesn't shame you like everyone else. No, he died for you. He paid the debt. That's why at the end of his life on the cross, he's hanging there. He says, it is finished. All debts are paid. All all has been removed. No more need to hide. No more need to live in shame. I'm going ahead of you to prepare a place for you. And you have to be saying to yourself, prepare a place for even me? (laughs) Prepare a place for me? Even after what I've done? Yes. Even you. All is finished. All debts are paid. No more need to live in shame or regret. Friends, this is why we need this exclusive Jesus. He's the only one who can solve the ache. He's the only one who can speak into the longing that we experience. He has gone ahead to repair a place for anyone who is looking for him. But how do we find him? How do we find him? That's our last question. And we see the two pieces in this passage for how do we find Jesus? The first is confession. Look at our passage and uh, we see our good friend, Thomas. Thomas has been part of our series. Um, and what we see here is despite his doubts and his questions, Thomas knows how to find Jesus. Listen to how he responds to Jesus's offer. He says this, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where we are going. Uh, friends, this is the first step to finding Jesus and the life he alone offers you this morning. Confess you've lost your way. Um, This is incredibly difficult to get to this place because whatever ache, whatever longing, whatever, whatever things go on in our life, we just keep saying to ourselves, you know what? I can figure my way out of here. I I can get out of this mess. Um, I don't know if you've had this happen before. You've, you've been with somebody, um, maybe they're driving or they're walking, they're, they're following some directions. Um, You know, they're lost. Uh, you recognize they don't know where they're going. 
The problem is they haven't recognized yet they are lost. Have you ever been with someone like, okay, they clearly, but they keep, they keep going. Do you know the first step to fixing lostness? It is to finally say you are lost. Finally getting to the place where you say to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where we are going. Have you done that? Have you done that? Uh, Friends, when you get to that place of surrender in your life, when you, that's when you find Jesus. And when you get to that place of surrender, that's when he begins to do the best work in and through you. No ministry, I believe, has modeled this better, this beauty of confession and blessed defeat than Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, People in AA live their lives up to a point they kept telling themselves, I'm okay. I know the way I I can quit anytime I want to. I I don't, I don't have an issue as their life crumbled around them. The beauty of AA is this reality that we don't find Jesus at the top, but we find Jesus at the bottom. And there's this great saying in AA that names Thomas's confession so well, and it says this, God's office is at the end of your rope. Love that line. God's office is at the end of your rope. Have you confessed you don't know the way this morning to Jesus? That's the first part. The second part to finding Jesus is right there at the beginning of our passage. We are invited to believe. This is what it says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God Believe also in me. Today, friends, it is so incredibly easy to have our hearts troubled. Wars, economic upheaval, political division. Once again, another mass shooting motivated by race in Buffalo. And this doesn't even account for all the troubles that we carry inside of us in our personal lives. But Jesus says, you will truly find your way. You will truly find your way when you put your trust and confidence in me to lead you to eternal life in the father's house. This is the audacity of the Christian message, not in its exclusiveness, but in its inclusiveness, no matter who you are, no matter how many unreturned library books you've stolen, No matter where you have looked for satisfaction and haven't found it, Jesus says every person who has ever lived, if you will confess you've lost your way and believe in me, I will lead you home to life. That's it. There's nothing more you will have to say. There's nothing more you will have to do, but confess we've lost our way and trust Jesus to lead us home. That's it. Every day of our lives, confess we've lost our way and we need him to lead us home Again, Jesus says, I am the way and I going ahead of you to accomplish for you. When Rachel and I lived in Michigan, we uh, were close friends uh, with a player that played on the Detroit Lions football team. And so once a year, we had the great privilege of of going to to see him play in one of the games. Um, But we didn't experience the games like normal people experience an NFL football game. Uh, what would happen is once a year we would, we would show up and we would get the player family treatment. I highly suggest this, by the way, 
We would drive our car right up to this private gate right next to the stadium. Uh, We would wave our badge that would let them know uh, that we are part of the secret family and friends entrance. And and I'm not going to lie. Every time this happened, I would feel so guilty as we would pull up there. I would just feel awful um, because we would pass by all of these Detroit Lions fans who'd been walking for miles decked out in Lions gear, many of them who'd been Detroit Lions fan their entire lives, which just sounds awful, by the way. I mean, the Lions have been awful for years, but they were so faithful, so loyal. And I would feel so guilty and ashamed as I would drive by these people walking in the brutal cold for miles and they're decked out in their Lions gear. And then there's me. I, I, would, I would show up to the game in no Lions gear, no jersey, no hat. And frankly, if I can be honest with you this morning, because it's church, I could care less whether they won. I was, I was there for my friend and, and I wanted him to keep his job. So I was praying he did well. Um, but to be honest, I could care less if they lost. But I would show up to this exclusive entrance with ticket in hand. And I would say, my friend said... I can enter here. My friend says, I can enter here. I had nothing to offer. I was the worst Lions fan by far in that stadium. But a friend had gone ahead of me to prepare the way. And friends, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That is what Jesus has done. That is good news. Jesus said, I am the way because I am the truth, because I am the life. Have you found him? Have you found him? Let's pray. Our father, would you make Jesus beautiful and real to each of us this morning? Uh, Would you remind us that all debts are paid and we have a friend who has gone ahead to prepare the way. Lord, meet us this morning with the great reminder of your goodness and your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.